The deal is that uh, law enforcement asked uh, Craigslist to do uh, some things. Craigslist did it. This cultivated, culminated in the FBI giving uh, Craigslist an award for doing the uh, the right thing. Um, Craigslist ran an extensive law enforcement operation. This is pretty much well known. Uh, it was not profitable in any regards, more the opposite. And that, uh, you know, Craigslist worked with law enforcement. Welcome to In Search of Excellence, which is about our quest for greatness and our desire to be the very best we can be. To learn, educate, and motivate ourselves to live up to our highest potential. It's about planning for excellence and how we achieve excellence through incredibly hard work, dedication, and perseverance. It's about believing in ourselves and the ability to overcome the many obstacles we all face on our way there. Achieving excellence is our goal, and it's never easy to do. We all have different backgrounds, personalities, and surroundings, and we all have different routes on how we hope and want to get there. My guest today is Craig Newmark. Craig is an entrepreneur and philanthropist who is best known for being the founder of Craigslist, which serves 700 cities in 70 countries and has 250 million users a month, and which reached $1 billion in revenue in 2018, only four years after he started the company. During the last eight years, Craig has been one of our country's most active and generous philanthropists. During that time, he has given away more than $200 million. In 2022 alone, he gave away $81 million, which made him the 24th most generous philanthropist in the United States that year. Craig, it's an incredible pleasure to have you on my show. Welcome to In Search of Excellence. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. I always start my podcast with our family because from the moment we're born, our family helps shape our personality, our values, and the preparation for our future. You were born into a Jewish family in Morristown, New Jersey, and grew up with no money across the street from a junkyard. Your mom was a bookkeeper and your dad was an insurance and meat salesman. They met at a synagogue dance, and when your dad died when you were 13 years old, what were your parents like and how do they influence your future? And in particular, how did your dad's death at when you were 13 years old influence your future? Um, I never knew my parents very well at all. Unfortunately, we weren't that kind of family, which may explain in part that I'm uh, poorly socialized. And even now, I can uh, simulate uh, proper socialization for maybe as much as 90 minutes, but I'm faking it. Uh, never really got to know my father at all. He was very distant. And uh, my mother and I never uh, grew really close. It is possible that my father's death caused me to grow uh, indrawn. And that may account for what previously was reasonable socialization. Maybe that was the uh, a, a cause of some problems. I don't know. And I never really will be able to know. When you were younger and you'd come home from school, were your parents stressing education and said, hey, Craig, you got great grades, or Craig, I think you're doing great in school? Did they encourage you to be active in other things other than school? Um, they kind of, at some point, took my academic performance for granted. They just assumed that it would be happening. They encouraged me to do other things, but as I recall, mostly for a college profile. Uh, it's uh, shocking in some ways that they can, they were thinking about it that much. This was the 50s, 60s. Um, 
but I guess they had spoken to some people, some parts of the family which were much more successful, where the uh, kids were already in college years ahead of where I would be. Did your parents go to college, and did they stress college for you from the beginning when you were a kid saying, you're definitely going to college, Craig, so don't think anything else? They never got to college, and I think uh, did complete high school, and... I think from an early age, they took for granted that I would be going to college because I was uh, academically intelligent, not emotionally intelligent, but academically. You know, I did well on standardized tests, so they kind of assumed that would happen. And in the 50s, 60s, and so on, uh, people thought college was the only way to get to a better career in life, so they really wanted me to do it. Was there a point in time, like there is for many successful people I know, when your parents gave you some kind of positive reinforcement mechanism and said, hey, Craig, you're phenomenally talented, or you have a bright future, or you're going to be the best at whatever you do one day, or did that come naturally to you at some point? I don't, I can't recall any encouragement of that sort. Uh, from them. I think it was largely uh, initiated by myself, maybe including uh, both uh, public school teachers plus my uh, Sunday school teachers. The Sunday school teachers were a major influence on me. You like going to Hebrew school on Sundays? It wasn't one of my <laughs> wasn't one of my favorite things. I I did my best when I was a kid to try to get kicked out as much as possible. Something I regret now, by the way. Um. I was good at it. I was academically smart. Again, not inte- not emotionally intelligent. And I guess uh, I was very much a rules follower. And I had a feeling I would wind up committed to the, uh, to the substance of Judaism, even if I don't, if, if, even if I'm not observant in the usual senses. As a kid, you liked science fiction, comic books, and wanted to become a paleontologist. Why a paleontologist? <laughs> Uh, I guess uh, kids love dinosaurs, and I figure if I love dinosaurs, I should study them. I have a feeling there is something more to it that I forgot, and I would have forgotten that like 60 years ago. At some point, you said, I don't want to be a paleontologist, and you wanted to do something in physics. And when you were 13, you formed a lifelong ambition which was to do something in master master quantum physics. What is master quantum physics, and how on earth did you know what that was when you were 13 years old? Well, sometime in there, my teens, I wanted to uh, study quantum physics. I guess you'd say I wanted to master it. And I kept studying physics throughout high school, Landed in college, took, you know, a good physics course, and then I realized I just wasn't smart enough. Uh, to be in quantum physics or related fields, you have to be among the uh, top uh, percent or two of students, and I didn't have it in me, so I went into computer sciences. Well, computer science is pretty difficult to go into as well. It's generally thought of, especially back then, very, very smart kids only went into computer science or you and I are from um, a different generation than most <laughs> students today where you take computer science in high school. Back then, when you and I were growing up in high school, if you were in computer science, you you were seeking it out. It didn't find you. And it was generally perceived to be only for the smartest kids were interested in that. 
Uh, I did have to seek it out, but it wasn't for the smartest kids. There were a lot of us who realized that uh, they could be good at computers, and that would be a pretty good field to get a job in. How old were you when you got your first computer? Or used the computer um, for the first, the first time? Let's say. I, yeah. The first computer I used, I think I was 17 and at high school, and I think I was using an IBM 1620. And at that point, did you say, I'm, I mean, there was very little functionality on that computer back in the day. So what were you doing with it? Was someone showing you certain mathematical equations and tasks you could do? Or were you trying to program it to create something? <laughs> I was just fooling around with it. I remember computing, I think it was radius of gyverture uh, back then as a class assignment. And I programmed it to play the game of NIM, which is a simple mathematical game. Although I did uh, program it to cheat if I flicked one of the uh, sense switches. So you've described yourself even today as the ultimate nerd. You went to Morristown High School. You wore taped together black rim glasses and a pocket protector. And in high school, I think your exact quote was your as possible nerd patient zero. You also sang in the school choir. You joined the physics club. You co-captained the debate team. What was that experience like thinking you were a nerd and did you want to be a nerd or say to yourself, one day I'm going to grow out of this and I'm going to have a different kind of a life? Uh, I never consciously realized that I was a nerd until years and years after high school. Had I realized it then and what it meant, my life would have been uh, simpler. Maybe I would have gotten properly uh, socialized, but I would have never uh, gotten the path I have which has been very good uh, for me, very good for my family, and argu arguably good for the species. Were you bullied as a kid because you were a nerd? I was very nerdy when I was a kid as well. Completely different person today. It kind of came out later in high school. I became more social. Certainly in college, it came out a lot. But were you... A lot of kids get bullied when they're they're nerds, especially when they're not socially part of a more popular crowd and don't have a lot of friends. I don't recall being bullied very much at all. I would be left out of things, but I just can't remember any sense that I was bullied. So going back to education, you earned a bachelor's degree in computer science from Case Western Reserve. And after you graduated, you briefly worked as a researcher before getting a master's degree in computer science, also from Case Western. In this day and age, is a college degree necessary to both our personal development as individuals and to our future success? I tend to think that in a lot of fields, particularly computer-related ones, you don't need a college degree for that. A lot of people teach themselves things. Some people do take formal coursework. And I think the thing that's missing from college that people would need to reproduce in some fields is the ability to work in teams of people. So in uh, computer sciences and maybe cybersecurity, I talk about the need for some education where people would be part of teams to set up and defend networks and then uh, they, uh, then act as opponents to a different group 
uh, you would attack the networks that another uh, team would set up. So teamwork is a big thing that needs to be uh, taught. But aside from that, the value of college, uh, let's say these days it's not very cost-effective, and people leave college owing a lot of money. They do. I think the research shows roughly that 63% of people graduating college are on financial aid, and the average debt is around $37,000. And this is a crazy statistic that the average loan takes 22 years to pay off. So it's, it's, yeah, the math there is very difficult to sort out. Yeah. I did take a loan. I left school with one, but it was pretty close to zero compared to what uh, people have to deal with these days. So when people come to you for advice and they ask, Craig, should I go to college? I want to start my own company. I'm a programmer. I don't really need this. What's your advice to them? Um, I'd say learn what you can about computers, but more importantly, learn what you can about working with people because pretty much nothing is done just by loan programmers, not in terms of large, uh, complex requirements. And yeah, the idea is that even people like me need social contact. So, I do think you need to to study with other people now and then for that uh, team experience that I cited. I'm not certain I answered your question. Did I come close? Uh, you, you came close. I'm curious how what your thoughts are if you have no interest in going into computer science, programming, or technology. Someone comes to you and says, "Hey, Craig." You're a super successful entrepreneur. You're an icon in the tech business. I'm not sure I want to go to college. I don't know if I need it. I'm going to start my own business selling widgets. And I think I'm really good at it. Do I need to go to college, Craig? Or should I? Uh, I don't think or, they do or don't I? If they, I don't think you need to, call, to go to college if you already have the uh, skills and relationships to make your business a success. Some people are naturally good at that kind of relationship. There's not a lot of people who are naturally good at it, and for sure I'm not one. So there will be people for whom college is a uh, distraction and a waste of money they should be investing in their own venture. Your first job out of college was at IBM, where you worked for 17 years as a programmer, and then you worked for, uh, and then you worked for several more technology companies, including... Charles Schwab. It's now 1995. And at this point, you're 42 years old. We're going to get a Craigslist in a minute. But before we do, what's your advice to people in today's society when everybody thinks I've got to start a company early before I'm too old, before I have golden handcuffs? Is 42 years old too late to start a company? Uh, 42 is definitely not too late. Uh, people are doing it well into their uh, 50s and sometimes 60s. In my case, I didn't intend to start a company. It's just that I had started something. I had made commitments, and I tend to follow through with my commitments. So starting it at 42, I guess, was, in ha was a happy accident. We're going to talk about the happy accident in a minute. But many people think gosh, by 42, I have a house, I have a mortgage, I have kids. 
it's too much responsibility to take a risk. Yes, Craigslist wasn't intended to be a company when you started. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But there is some sense prevailing in the tech community. I got to do this early before I have all of those responsibilities. Is that and and a lot of the founders today have very little patience. I got to do it now. I want to do this as soon as possible. What's your advice to all of them, especially those we know so many of these, Craig, who want to start a company right out of the gate. They're 22, 25 years old, no experience, have never managed anyone, no P&L responsibility. And they say, I want to do this now. Okay. I'd uh, say for young people, uh, if you have the tolerance for risk-taking, if this is something you believe in, then go ahead and really do. However, if you're in your 40s and have big uh, responsibilities, including dependents, that calculation is somewhat different. And it's based on uh, the individual. Um, I spoke to a guy who didn't take his dream job because it would mean relocating his uh, family um, in an area which would be hard to start again in because the cost of living would be higher, finding a place to live would be higher or harder, and uh, even uh, new schools would be challenging. Before... Craigslist turned into a company, all those years you were working at these tech giants, did you say to yourself, I'm good with this, or one day I do want to be my own boss. I want to start a company. I just don't know when. I may not try it. It may come to me. But were you satisfied with what you were doing? Um, I was uh, happy working for a company. that I started my own company, you know, Craigslist. That was all just a happy accident. Again, I had started a hobby and right. it proved to have a lot of potential and I felt uh, obligated to follow through. So many iconic companies, some of the most successful companies in the, in the world, like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter didn't start out as companies. They started out as ways for people to network and share pictures and videos and as communication tools. Craigslist falls into the same category. We've already talked about it briefly. Can you tell us how you became an accidental entrepreneur, how Craigslist started, and the point at which you realized you had a business there, particularly when the email program broke when you sent 250 emails out to people? (laughs) Well, it was all just one tiny step after one tiny step. And again, I had no idea that I was creating a a business in the first four years. It was a hobby. And then in one year, it was a hobby with volunteers. But people approached me towards the end of uh, 98, telling me that if I wanted this thing to continue, if I was going to follow through, I had to make it into a real company. And so I did. Well, let's go back to the very beginning. Take us through... Step-by-step, you created an email list for friends to make certain postings. What were the postings and what exactly was your initial idea when you were sending out these emails? Well, basically, I was inviting people to uh, send me uh, emails about interesting events or whatever uh, thought what they thought was important. For example, a job offer or something to sell. And people just started sending those things into me. I encouraged people to, uh, to do that. And then I would relay those to, uh, a CC list 
using my email program. As I think you've read, at some point the CC list broke at around 240 email addresses, and that's when I had to use a list server. I had to give the thing a name, and uh, I was going to call it uh, San Francisco Events, since it was still mostly that. I hadn't gotten many alternative uh, postings in. And uh, so, again, the thing broke. I was going to call it SF Events. People around me who were smarter than me told me that they already called it Craigslist, that I had inadvertently created a brand. They explained to me what a brand is, and then I just kept uh, happily along my way. So, at some point, people are using it, and you're saying to yourself, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, but you're still working. I think at Charles Schwab at the time, and you continue to work there for another year, two or three. What was happening during that time? And were you spending, how, how much time were you spending on Craigslist while you were working full time? And during this, these two or three years, were you thinking at some point I may leave if I can make money doing this and give up my day job? Well, it turns out, um, early 95, uh, Schwab had issues and I was uh, given a nice severance package and I uh, left, worked on this uh, hobby of mine while I was still figuring out what to do. This was 95 during the uh, rise of the, uh, the dot com bubble. So there was a lot of opportunity to, to learn and to do website work. And that kind of worked out for me. But even better, sometime in, uh, you know, early 96, uh, oh, people, uh, encouraged me to go a more freelance. I did so. Uh, but the idea is that I left Schwab, continued what was a hobby then, took uh, a job as a freelance programmer, and that turns out to be pretty lucrative. So things were pretty good for me. Uh, immediately after leaving the corporate world. And, uh, I would, you know, I just made better use of the programming skills that I already had. I used teach yourself style books to learn even more. And, uh, I just kept on, uh, both with my hobby, but also my freelance programming work until at some point people helped me understand that I needed to turn my hobby into a business. <coughs> What was your work schedule like during this period of time? So many people I know, and this is true of me and most people I know who start companies, they have a full-time job and they're doing another job on the side, startup on the side could be research. They do a bunch of research. Some do start companies, some don't start companies. But were you working 6 a.m. to midnight each day to get both done? Or what was the what was the time like here for you? I would... I would work every day, and because I was uh, freelancing and not going into the office every day, I would just uh, intermingle things. I would work on my hobby in my spare time, and then I would work in my contracting job, billing hours and other time, keeping them very clean and separate and so on, encouraged, in fact, by my uh, boss at the uh, freelance job. And I just kept plugging away. I don't recall my hours very clearly, how I would spend things, since I'm a pretty fast worker and can get things done in small niches of time. 
Uh, back then, oh, it was, everything was very crude, and it was actually purely simple to keep uh, maintained. What's more so is that when I found a task starting to become more burdensome, I would write some code, and that would make the job uh, easier. Do you remember if you were working until midnight some nights just to keep the thing alive and keep adding fuel to the fire? Or because you had such flexibility, you weren't working 100 hours a week? Yeah. I My total in that particular period, I was probably not working much more than 90 or 100 hours a week. And that just oh. means working through the weekends, working into some evenings, not a big deal. The idea is that I was doing something I believed in and thought maybe it would uh, be lucrative someday. And do you remember what the first dollar customer ad was that you brought into the site? The site is free, and then you charge certain people to post things on the site in certain categories. Do you remember what the first thing that somebody posted that you paid for was, and how good was that feeling when that money hit that bank account. I uh, don't remember much of uh, any of the specifics there. I don't even remember our first ads, which is too bad, and they're lost to history. The earliest one I can remember was someone wanted to pay someone else for the someone else to take the CPA ethics test of the original someone. And uh, that's uh, both unfortunate, but also pretty funny. Do you remember how much that cost back then? Uh, back then, it would have been, that one would have been free. For the first three years or so, pretty much everything was free. Um, started charging as an experiment in 98, and then making it into a real company in 99. That's when we started charging people more. But the uh, monetization philosophy was basically uh, like charge people what they much less than what they would be paying for less effective ads. Um, because I made a decision to minimize, mon uh, to monetize minimally for various reasons. What were those reasons? Well, basically, uh, I was thinking about Sunday school, being told that I should know when enough is enough, and that a person struggling to put food on the table, you know, they should be pay, paying for food. They should not be paying for an ad on Craigslist. So in a lot of cases, um, a lot of those things would be, uh, would be free. You know, and even, even now, Craigslist ch tends to charge uh, dealers of different sorts, people who are making serious money for ads, and trying not to charge regular people who are just doing things like trying to sell an old car. So many entrepreneurs have a job, they have an idea, they plan to start a new company. At some point, they said, I'm going to go jump off and do this. They have a lot of fear when they go and start and leave a salary job. Suddenly, the money's not coming in anymore. And I'm talking about starting a company that's pre-revenue, so they have to have savings. What's your advice to people with respect to when is the right time to leave your job if you have a job to start a company in terms of where you are in your life and your career? We touched upon it a little bit, but can you talk about people's fear of failure 
and whether they should listen to that fear or when they should overcome that fear and jump off and go do uh, it? I don't. I could have an answer for that. I can only speculate since the times when I really left the, the actual jobs I had, uh, in both cases, both companies uh, were suffering. They really didn't know what to do about IT. And I was able to leave and get generous uh, severances. The exception, I guess, is I did take on a small job during the uh, Craigslist uh, hobby years. And after people convinced me that Craigslist would only survive, um, if I went full time with Craigslist, at that point I left an actual job that was fortunate because the startup I was with wasn't going to go anywhere. Uh, but I did take on, uh, you know, I did take on the management of Craigslist at that point only for a year and built the beginning of a company. I wasn't too good at it. But I uh, got a few good hires who made sure that the company runs well to this day. Things took off. And like so many companies in a frothy market, this was part of the tech boom. There were companies created, including ours, Akamai, that, that had billions of dollars of value within a year or two. VCs pouring money into the tech space. And everyone wants to fund Craigslist. Throwing money at Craigslist, I'll give you tens of millions of dollars. All the best firms are knocking down your doors. You said no to all of them. In today's environment, there is some culture among founders for people to raise as much money as possible. These rounds are getting absolutely ridiculous. I'm seeing pre-seed rounds of $20 million dollars. Why didn't you take the money? And what's your advice to all of these entrepreneurs, 99% of whom I've ever met said, I'm going to raise a ton of money and I'm going to treat that as a mark of my initial success? Um, in my case, uh, my Sunday school teachers uh, taught me to know when enough is enough. Uh, and I just uh, followed through with uh, what I learned there, I guess that helped set my uh, moral compass. And that's what uh, worked out for me. Uh, personally, I don't understand the, uh, the point of having enormous amounts of money and buying mansions all over the place and having a lot of cars. That just doesn't make sense to me, given my upbringing. Maybe that reflects poor socialization also. I don't know. But uh, that's what my values are about. Sometimes I talk about nerd values, meaning make enough to live comfortably and to help out uh, family in particular, and then just move on from there. That's what worked. That's what's worked for me. That's how I continue to live, even though I'm far into my retirement now. So what's your advice to the founders out there, the majority of whom think they have to raise as much money as possible to start a company? It's so individual. Um, so I'd say do what makes sense for them themselves as individuals. It's a business decision first. It is an emotional decision uh, second. Sometime, uh, sometime you have to have enough cash to provide a runway while you're competing with people in the same space, sometimes the same uh, hot new space. 
When we look at funding companies, one of the things that we look at first and foremost, and probably the most important for me, is the founder, quality, experience, general feel and sense of the founder. We also evaluate and make judgments on, is this founder going to be the ultimate CEO of the company? Does this person know how to manage people, raise capital, motivate people? Have they ever done it before on a large grand level? And often the case, they don't. In your case, you, you recognize early, which is rare among founders, that you are not the right person to run the company. Can you talk to us a little bit about founder syndrome, what you did at Craigslist and what's your advice to those founders who stubbornly think they're the right person to manage their company till the very end, even if they're probably not? It's just an observation that in uh, this industry and maybe all industries, sometimes the person who's good at starting something, who has that drive and that personality and other strengths those strengths aren't the strengths required to continue the existence of an organization. And fortunately, I had seen uh, big mistakes made uh, earlier in my career in the industry, saw people who started off with great uh, software packages, which made them a lot of money, uh, but they didn't realize when they needed to turn things over to someone who is good at uh, running a business. Um, like one successful transition both ways uh, were the guys at Google turning things over to uh, oh, to, to Eric Schmidt, who ran things and taught them how to run things as uh, serious managers. And then when they thought they learned enough, they took uh, things back over. Now they, uh, things have moved again, but they did a good job building a good company. And what went into the decision for you? Can you talk about Jim a little bit and how you knew each other and what his skill set was before? And ultimately, did you guys have coffee one day and said, hey, Jim, I want you to run this. This is not the best job for me. Um, The deal was that sometime uh, towards the end of 99, uh, people who were good at business People helped me understand that as a manager, I sucked. And again, this was kind of late 99, right around the same time I hired Jim to be a technical lead. And then, uh, oh, as I admitted to myself that I really didn't or shouldn't be CEO, that's when I realized that I had hired some people who were pretty skilled, pretty skilled in management, uh, Jim was one of them, and I figured, oh, Jim will make a good manager. I can step down. I left all management. I became a customer service rep. I didn't manage customer service. I became an individual customer service rep, which is a big, important thing, because in most of a U.S. computer industry, customer service isn't taken very seriously, Whereas in Craigslist, customer service was, was always taken very passionately. So what were the kinds of things you were doing in customer service? I, I think what you're talking about is fascinating. Apple has great customer service. You call, you hit a button, someone calls you the minute you hit that button. Um, Amazon 
same thing. So many companies, you wait on hold for an hour. You get routed to call centers where people don't speak good English. It's frustrating. They hang up on you. It's such an incredibly important job. And so few tech companies do it right. And I think it's amazing to have a founder of a successful company like Craigslist to actually be taking phone calls. So give us an example of the kinds of things you were doing in customer service where people writing in, hey, Craigslist, can you do this or that? And you would write it back. And did people know it was you actually writing back? Um, my deal was that I did ask for the uh, privilege early on of not normally being the person on the end of the phone. Um, I did handle phone calls now and then, but mostly I was looking at uh, emails coming in. And I would handle, uh, you know, whatever problems articulated that way. My, uh, I got emails sent to me by the uh, bulk of the uh, customer service leadership. But it wasn't hard to guess that my email address was craig at craigslist.org. That doesn't work anymore, but that was craig at craigslist.org. And people asked me things like what category should something be in or they uh, ask me, you know, what needed to be paid for or whatnot. Uh, sometimes people ask me if I could bend the rules for them, the answer always being uh, no. People are asking for all sorts of things. Sometimes I was asked for uh, help digging into a situation which was unusual. For example, people who were advertising for kidney donors. That turned out to be an unusual, unexpected, and successful thing. I just saw an article on that a week or so ago because people were finding successful uh, kidney donors on the site, and somehow that worked well to complement whatever official mechanisms people have. So I would do actual customer service. I would also do some things running internal tools looking for issues which I need to be vague about. But I was seriously a, uh, an actual customer service rep until the, uh, let's say, around seven years ago. Uh, at some point, I realized that I was still doing some customer service. The company needed me less and less. How important is it for companies to follow the principle of treating people how they want to be treated? And where should this be? and a company's ranking of goals and as a factor in their success? Well, we all learn and believe in the idea of treating people like you want to be treated. But as we grow up, we kind of forget that uh, consciously, and maybe it's not, maybe we haven't internalized it th that uh, well. When you're in a small company, 150 or less, then you can cop, kind of operate on intuition. You get to know people, so you kind of remember treating people like you want to be treated. And so it's not that hard uh, because it's internalized and you can follow through. The problem is when companies get to uh, be 150 people or larger, at that point then, people forget what they uh, what they learned um, and companies start dividing into factions and cliques and all sorts. And it's hard to remember to treat people who are not uh, your friends, who are not in the same clique. And as for that, 
I don't have a solution because I've never been in that situation where I'm in management. I could half-heartedly suggest that people keep talking about the golden rule, keep telling people to treat people like they want to be treated, and just never stop saying it. You got to stop short of spamming people. But maybe that's maybe that can work. It's the only thing I can think of, and it's kind of half-assed as a suggestion, but it's what I would do. I would love for the CEO of Verizon to call the same number I have to call when there's a problem on my phone bill and sit and deal with people and wait on hold and try to explain things, and then it doesn't work and call back three or four months in a row, which is one of the problems I'm having on my phone bill today. It's ridiculous. And it's frustrating. And it's funny, you're in the ivory tower up there and you're running a company with 10,000, 100,000 employees. I think people like the CEO of Uber did got into a, a Uber and drove people around for a couple of weeks to actually experience what an Uber driver did and a customer service. Uh, the experience of having customer service is as well. I think every CEO should put on a customer service hat and put on a client hat and experience their systems and experiences just like the rest of us do. Uh, I do agree uh, wholeheartedly with that. The deal is that, oh, um, CEOs and well, people who are in high management need to have a real good sense of and commitment to customer service. That could be done in a number of different ways, but the bottom line is they have to take customer service seriously. And I have seen companies who do take it seriously and some who don't. Uh, I'm an Amazon customer. They do seem to have fairly good mechanisms. They are flawed, but when you ask for a call, you generally get a call back uh, fairly quickly and maybe, uh, Maybe it doesn't work out uh, perfectly, but it's a start, and you can actually get things solved that way. And it inspires customer loyalty. People want to keep coming back. Uh, it does. From my point of view, customer service is a way to make more money, to make a more successful company. But I have not been able to convince anyone in a big company that. Sometimes I even volunteer to help fix some things since that's in my skill set. But uh, I think I've been taken up on it very rarely. You talked about an organization with 150 people. You also, as a founder, know, as I do, when you start out as a smaller company, it's easier to keep the quality of employees higher. At some point, as you get larger and larger, you want everyone to be a superstar, but it's a lot harder to do. Can you tell us about something called Dunbar's number and how that's been one of the guiding principles at Craigslist over the years? Uh, Dunbar number seems to uh, be an observation that when you get people working together, um, people can kind of know each other, rely on each other, trust each other, if the number of people involved is uh, no more than 150. Once the number of people in the organization hits 150, then people stop knowing each other, start forming their own cliques or uh, factions or tribes, 
And then as soon as you get factions, factions uh, are competing and wind up not trusting each other. Um, the deal with uh, Craigslist is that under Jim's leadership, um, we never even began to approach the uh, Dunbar number. The deal is that Jim is real good at running the com- company lean so that there's uh, not a lot of people in the company who aren't uh, being really uh, productive. And that way, keep the number small, uh, tight and lean, and you can uh, you can do pretty well. And that does make for a lot of uh, revenue per employee. Uh, I should uh, clarify there that none of the figures which are public about Craigslist uh, can be relied on. No one uh, is actually publishing uh, honest numbers. Except maybe the page views, which people can somewhat... There are services out there to determine page views, visits, etc., etc. You're right. There are no reliable dollar figures out there. Typically, okay. just people are making stuff. But uh, one can look at uh, page measurement services or traffic measurement services, some of which are reasonably accurate, some of which are free. Because, frankly, I'm not going to pay... Uh, pay for it, you know, and uh, I am pleased to see Craigslist traffic still stays uh, strong. Just to go back to Dunbar's number, we're talking about British anthropologist Robin Dunbar, who Dunbar's name is, who the term Dunbar's number is named after. Does Craigslist still have fewer than 50 employees today? I think so, but I actually haven't asked in some years. And I didn't ask during the pandemic years because I didn't want to complicate Jim's life or, for that matter, uh, Mabel's life. She runs a chunk of the company. And sometimes you get curious about something, but why add one more task or a bit of homework to someone's job if they're already too busy? Let's switch topics and talk about elements of success, in particular, the importance of listening and patience. Can you tell us about a book you read 25 years ago by Deborah Tannen called You Just Don't Understand? Well, that has to do a lot with gender communications and realizing that different people, between genders and otherwise too, people don't listen the same way, people don't make themselves known the same way, and that's just uh, human life. I read the book. I now can... uh, Remember to misunderstand less than I used to. Uh, for example, very often when uh, my wife is telling me about something, specifically telling me about a problem, she is not asking me to solve the problem. She is just telling me about it. As a male and an engineer, I feel compelled to solve the problem, but she has explained to me, a number of times. She doesn't need my help. She just wants me to listen. And frequently, but not always, I can catch myself. How important are listening and patience to our success? Um, you can't get anything done if you're not listening to people who are telling you what you need to know, particularly if they're telling you something you need to know that you don't want to know. Uh, patience... The deal is, for whatever reason, 
things take time. Um, I'm uh, struggling to find enough patience in a number of ways, for example, regarding the delivery of a chair to replace a broken one. But also, there's a lot of times when people in the nonprofit world are having difficulty articulating what they're doing because they're just, they're not good at talking about what they do, but they're good at doing what they do. So I have to be patient to uh, work with a person who's good at something, even if they're not good at talking about it. Um, that is particularly important since in the, in the nonprofit world, uh, often people who are good at something, not good at talking about it. But in the uh, reverse, there are a lot of people who are good at talking about what they do, but are terrible at it, and in fact, maybe running scams. Another element to success that's been one of the core ingredients of my success is something which I talk about a lot, which I'm known for, which is called extreme preparation. I'm talking about an entirely different new level of preparation. When someone prepares one hour for a meeting, I may prepare five or 10 for a meeting. Instead of preparing five hours, I may prepare 50 hours. We just did a presentation for Marriott around four or five months ago. I think we spent 80 hours on that thing. How important has extreme preparation been to your success? And can you give us one or two very specific examples where you killed it on the prep and said, I'm going to be the most prepared person for this project or this task or this interview or this product launch? I don't think I practice what you'd call extreme preparation. I uh, do some preparation work. I do bits of research as needed. Um, I put together what notes I want to, but although I never put together a prepared talk. And I make sure the things that are working that need to work for example, if I'm going to demonstrate something um, and I need to spend some time getting my head into the right space, but I find that that works uh, uh, well perfectly for me. I can be uh, spontaneous and do things that way, and that uh, generally works for me. I also do uh, believe that, uh, oh, there's a number of ways of saying it, it's like a no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. There's also a saying that uh, man plans, God laughs, because I know that planning uh, is often not resilient. So I try to say resilient and uh, be flexible as time goes on, because sometimes no matter what you do, how well prepared you are, uh, you get a surprise. And then if you're not prepared for a surprise mentally, if you're not resilient, if you're not flexible, then you're screwed. So I guess I believe in a, a reasonable amount of, pre of preparation. But after that, it feels like too much preparation. I've always been coaching that when you prepare, part of the preparation is to prepare for the unexpected. And that includes logistical things, which are easily solved, getting there two hours before if you're in traffic or not taking the last flight out or laying out your clothes the night before or getting your dry cleaning done, all kinds of little things that people forget. And even during meetings, I don't know if this has been 
part of your career or not, I've seen the Wi-Fi go out. So we bring sometimes temporary routers to presentations. We bring presentations on USB sticks. Uh, We've seen all kinds of technical calamities, even when we're pitching at Andreessen Horowitz or Benchmark or one of these other firms, things happen and we want to be prepared to anticipate something going wrong. Um, uh, in this sense, I do agree with you pretty completely. I do uh, contemplate things going wrong. I will prepare the night ahead for a, a trip. I, uh, If I have to give a demo or do something like that, I provide for some uh, redundancy. And I even have a to-do list of things to do. For example, when I'm going to travel, uh, bec- uh, for example, I uh, carry a multi-tool with a blade, and then my to-do list is to always leave the multi-tool at home since any blade uh, is a problem bringing it onto a plane. So I do uh, over-prepare in that sense. I over-organize at times, and uh, I don't think I'm uh, obsessive-compulsive, but now and then I find myself thinking I'm doing something that an obsessive-compulsive would do. I think I'm okay, but a professional might tell me I go over a limit. What are other elements of success? If I ask you, what are the five elements of success? What would they be? Um, I would have to wing it and just remember what some of my values are, like treating people like you want to be treated, uh, do customer service uh, seriously, um, and I guess uh, preparation Sometimes a little obsessive preparation is required for the job. You know, I don't think about what it took uh, for me because, you know, like I tell people, my success in uh, work, a lot of it has to do with uh, just accidentally being in the right time and place. And that makes me the forest Gump of the Internet. Where does work ethic rank? in terms of elements of success? I guess I take work ethic for granted and shouldn't, but I, because I just commit to something and I just do what I need to do to get it done. But you're right. I guess I could list that in one's, uh, in my top five. So let's talk about some numbers that I think may be accurate about Craigslist and it's huge reach, 700 cities and 70 countries, 250 million visits every month. I want to go to an article in the Guardian newspaper from February 2006 that said this, it wrote this, quote, it began with a single email to a few friends and has mushroomed into an international success to rival Microsoft and Google Newmark deserves his place in the emerging pantheon of technology pioneers joining Bill Gates, Larry Page, and Sergey Brin. Newmark, a man so nerdish, he makes Gates look like a flamboyant playboy, may even be the greatest of them all. Did you see that article? And what's your response to that? I believe I forgot about it long ago. It's uh, flattering. I might enjoy it for a uh, couple seconds. And then it's back to work. Uh, I do like uh, 
the comparison to uh, Bill Gates as a flamboyant, flamboyant playboy, there are people who might argue some of that has happened. Um, so I'll be amused by it. I'll be flattered. And then I got to get back to work. When you reacted to this back at the time, you said you weren't a celebrity and you said you want to assure all your readers that I don't exist. And as a bonus joke for the physics nerds, you said this, you said, I exist in a state of quantum superposition, simultaneously existing and non-existing. What does that uh, mean when you say that? It, uh, it means that I have a sense of humor and that as a nerd and uh, someone who's read a little physics, I thought that was, uh, ter- I thought that was funny. The deal really is that there are people, still are people, who think that there is no Craig behind Craigslist, and that's funny. I think it's funny to encourage them for a while to think that, but I will generally uh, uh, admit my identity. Uh, But I do have a sense of humor. Oh, about uh, lots of things. It's fairly surreal. It's fairly absurd. And that's what I was uh, demonstrating in that comment. You are a celebrity in the technology world and you are world famous in the technology world. Do you ever stop and think about how people are comparing, are, have compared you to the likes of Bill Gates and Larry and Sergey? That must feel kind of good. Uh, I don't know if I believe, uh, if I believe I'm a celebrity. And I tell people that if you think that, you need to get that, you need to get out more often. It is flattering. And again, it feels good for a few seconds. And then I have to focus on what needs to be got done. How important is being humble in our search for excellence? Um, I think a humility is required because you have to have a realistic assessment of what you and your company uh, can do. Um, if you start believing your own press, uh, that's bad, and that's one form of dysfunction. I, uh, another one, well, somebody, maybe Scott Galloway, pointed out that uh, power corrupts and uh, makes you stupid, or maybe he said money makes you stupid. The deal is that if you have power or money, that can isolate you from what's real. Uh, like it might isolate you from your employees, from your customers. At that point, you make stupid decisions. And at some point, uh, if you don't recover, then you just become a matter of historical interest only. I had Tony Fidel on my podcast recently, invented the iPhone. That's a big deal the iPad, that's a big deal. And I said to him, Tony, do you ever stop to think about, close your eyes when you're sleeping or on a hike or meditating by yourself, all the billions of lives you've influenced in probably every country in the world? And I want to ask you a similar question. There's billions of transactions that have gone through Craigslist trillions and trillions of dollars. I don't even know if you've ever tracked the number. I I bet it's a hundred trillion dollars or more. How does it feel to influence the lives of billions of people around the world and make the world a better place by providing them a service that people obviously need and love? Um, It feels pretty good to contemplate it, 
to think that uh, one thing Craigslist did is it showed people, uh, a lot of people, that the Internet is actually useful for something and that it's reasonably easy to use. That's good to contemplate. It's good to reflect that Craigslist has helped people put food on the table. And then it's time to move on to the next thing that needs to be got done. Every company, every person has challenges. That's one of the reasons that I started my podcast was to inspire people by telling the stories and sharing the stories about how we all got there. And we've all had lots of challenges. I want to talk about one of Craigslist's challenges with respect to erotic service ads. In 2010, attorneys general in 17 states sent Craigslist a letter asking Craigslist to discontinue its adult services section, which was then called erotic services. It was hugely profitable, 7,000 ads in a single day back then. It still had a section called personals, but on March 23rd, 2018, Craigslist took down the personal sections when Congress passed the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, which was meant to crack down on sex trafficking of children. But Craigslist still offers personal ads in other countries where the laws governing online content are different, such as Canada and the United Kingdom. How has Craigslist um, dealt with these issues throughout the years? The deal is that uh, law enforcement asked uh, Craigslist to do uh, some things. Craigslist did it. This cultivated, culminated in the FBI giving uh, Craigslist an award for doing the uh, the right thing. Um, Craigslist ran an extensive law enforcement operation. This is pretty much well known. Uh, it was not profitable in any regards, more the opposite. And that, uh, you know, Craigslist worked with law enforcement and uh, followed the uh, and followed the lead of law enforcement. Uh, Craigslist tended to uh, focus more on what law enforcement required rather than what uh, politicians said. So the idea is that any organization needs to work with appropriate law enforcement direction. Uh, politicians have other ideas. And I guess uh, one might argue that they, one should follow the lead of law enforcement, uh, not politicians. And that's why Craigslist got that FBI award. When you say that it wasn't profitable, aren't all ads profitable? This was a very heavily trafficked no. part of your website at one point. Um, all ads are uh, not profitable. Um, some are free. Uh, some ads... Uh, under direction of law enforcement might involve a, a charge which doesn't go very far in, in terms of uh, recovering the costs involved. And in fact, the attorney generals uh, did tell Craigslist, this is very much on the record, did tell Craigslist to charge enough to recover costs. But uh, Craigslist doesn't uh, publish this, but it's very easy when you're running a very sophisticated law enforcement operation. Sometimes you can't charge enough to recover costs. So we've already talked about money a little bit in the show, and you don't like to talk about your net worth, but it's estimated between $1 and $3 billion. We've already said you don't own a car. You prefer public transportation. You don't own a plane. You fly commercial. 
And you live with your wife, Eileen, in a small home in San Francisco's Coal Valley. You do have a three-bedroom apartment in Greenwich Village, which reportedly costs $6 million. Do you have other indulgences that you do personally? We're going to get into the philanthropy in a minute. But do you have other indulgences where you say, gosh, I, I have made a fair amount of money and there's things that I wanted to treat myself to and I'm, I'm doing that? Um, all estimates of my uh, net worth are ridiculously overstated. I uh, am not, nor have I ever been a billionaire, in particular since I've now given away so much. I do have indulgences. Again, I have uh, small homes in San Francisco and New York. They're bigger than I want uh, because my wife's family likes to drop in. Um, I do have some indulgences. I buy all the uh, books I want. Uh I do have all the streaming services I want, and I, uh, whenever I want, I uh, drink uh, Mountain Dew, Diet Mountain Dew, which I'm doing right now. That's a uh, cliche about programmers. But I don't ind indulge myself uh, as much as I might want to. Again, I don't own a car, because they're just a pain in the butt. And uh, now and then I'll buy myself a treat, I might even uh, engage in uh, retail therapy. For example, I'll buy a, a short cable uh, to connect to things, which will be so much neater than a long cable. And that's a little bit frivolous, but that's the kind of indulgence I enjoy. You're very unusual that way, I think, in terms of people that have made a lot of money. I think it's amazing what you're doing with philanthropy. We're going to talk about it in one second. It's truly incredible. But... When you sat back and you said, all right, I've made a lot of money. Craigslist has been reportedly extremely profitable almost from the get-go and still is. Is making all that money all that it's cracked up to be? And are there any downsides to having a significant amount of money? Well, there's uh, multiple questions in there. First, there are no accurate reports that have anything to do with how much money Craigslist makes. Uh, and I can only speak for myself about money. Um the deal is, again, from Sunday school, uh, how much is enough? And once you get that uh, enough and you help out uh, family, for example, at that point, it's just more satisfying to change things. So that's what I'm doing. You're doing amazing things. Before we get there, can we talk about the painting of your beloved pigeon, Ghostface Kala on your mantle? <laughs> and what is your obsession with pigeons? Well, I love birds, and I have a sense of humor, and we observe them out here. It is fun uh, watching them, uh, just how they behave with each other and with us. Uh, for example, as soon as uh, my wife or I come to the right window, Ghostface and others start congregating, uh, assuming that we will feed them, and usually we will. It is uh, interesting and sometimes uh, uh, entertaining to see pigeons uh, fight for whatever food we put out there or might uh, might compete for dominance. I mean, you hear about pecking order, but every day we see pecking order in action. We are concerned that uh, one of uh, Ghostface's sons, we think, we call Big Face, uh, Big Face is making an attempt at uh, displacing his uh, father as boss. 
And we think Big Face is more stamina than Ghostface, but Ghostface is a more effective fighter. So it usually ends with uh, Ghostface winning, and then he'll do his pigeon victory dance, which mostly consists of uh, rotating in a circle and uh, cooing menacingly. Um, so we are, uh, it is pretty entertaining seeing this and uh, educational as well. Most people don't know this, but there's actually 250 kinds of pigeons, and they're one of the smartest birds on the planet. They can find their way back to you from 1,400 miles. But you said that you one of the reasons you like pigeons is because they're the underdogs. Do you root for the underdogs, and how important has that been a theme of what you've done in your career and what you're doing right now? Uh, for whatever reasons, I tend to identify with people uh, – towards the uh, bottom of the economic uh, spectrum. Uh, that's how I grew up and uh, identify. Um, recently, I realized that I grew up in a neighborhood full of junkyards, truck maintenance, and that kind of thing. I grew up as a peasant uh, with no money, and now on a gut level, I kind of feel like I'm a peasant with some money. And... Uh, Somehow I managed to reinforce that by virtue of the books I read and the movies I watch. And that feels about right. The principle is uh, treat people like you want to be treated. And that uh, works for me and reinforces that attitude that uh, uh, basically I'm a grunt. I've done well for myself, but I'm still a grunt and have the tastes of a grunt. I'm also, though, a nerd. And that influences my taste. For example, I prefer science fiction over football. Do you watch any football at all? No. I'm a nerd. Let's talk about something I'm passionate about and you're very passionate about, which is philanthropy. Can you tell us about Craig Newmark Philanthropies and Craig's Connects and what your goals are with those institutions? The Craig Connects things is obsolete it was replaced by Craig Newmark Philanthropies. Craig Newmark Philanthropies is about my commitment to help and protect the people who help and protect the country. Uh, for example, I'm putting a lot of resources, time, influence, money into cybersecurity because when it comes to education or tool development, um, you know, that's not something often done by the government. Not by, none by, not done by industry. So it has to be done philanthropically to fill in those holes, some of which are really big. I'm also doing more, increasingly more over time to support veterans and military families since, oh, let's say there are holes in those support networks that are not being addressed yet by government. Uh, that's changing. Uh, the president is doing something about that, let's say, for veterans and their caregivers. I think there's a big event tomorrow to that effect. So those are the things that Craig Newmark Philanthropies is about. Also, pigeon rescue. Is pigeon rescue an issue today? And why have you chosen pigeon rescue versus some of the other gifts that you've given to Things like cybersecurity, journalism, election integrity. 
uh, let's say the amount of time, energy, and money I devote to pigeon rescue is very, very small. It's zero compared to everything else. However, I do love birds, and I have a sense of humor, and I suspect that pigeons may be our replacement species. Uh, I mean, it's not like I, for one, welcome our pigeon overlords, but the deal is that uh, I do love birds, and I do have a real sense of humor, and this seems to be a good way of doing it, which is genuinely uh, compassionate. Why is it so important to you to support veterans and their families? Um, I figure if someone's going to uh, go overseas, risk taking a bullet to protect me, if the family is willing to sacrifice a lot so that they are a service member can do that, then I figure I, as an American, owe it to the veteran, to the active service member, to the families, to do something about it. I mean, we all do a bit of that with our tax monies, but it's not enough. I think there's a misconception out there about philanthropy that you have to be rich or have a lot of money to do good. What's your advice to founders about philanthropy in general and to all those people out there who are not founders, who are working at companies who are 23, 25, 30 years old that want to get involved in something? Find something that you uh, believe in. Find an organization which is vetted in the sense that they're really doing a good job and not running a scam, and then make the modest contribution of your time or money to it. Like for teachers, there's Donors Choose, which allow you can donate five bucks to help a teacher pay for a class project. Classrooms across the country are very underfunded, so sometimes the class project is just buying enough paper uh, for their students. When it comes to vets, Bob Woodruff Foundation runs the Got Your Six Network, which is a network of uh, oh a few hundred organizations that are actually good at helping vets, and a lot of organizations like that aren't. And then, uh, you know, if, if you uh, make small contributions now and then, that helps people out. The same is true of organizations which feed people. Uh, down the street from me is God's Love We Deliver. Uh, they do a great job. They need cash contributions, and sometimes they need volunteers to help feed people. Those are the kind of things that regular people can do. Before we finish today, I want to go ahead and ask some more open-ended questions. I call this part of my podcast, Fill in the Blank to Excellence. Are you ready to play? Yes. The biggest lesson I've learned in my life is? Uh, to treat people like you want to be treated. My number one professional goal is? Uh to follow through with my commitments. My number one personal goal is? Uh, I'd like to be as uh, funny as I think I am. Are you taking any comedy classes to be funny? I know people who actually do this. And I, uh, I'll, I'll do a shout out to Joe Hart on this one, who actually, it, I, it helps them. I do talk to a comic who lives around the corner from me. Uh, he recommends I keep my day job. My biggest regret is? Um, oh, not learning how to ride a bike. Is there a reason why you are not learning how to ride a bike? Uh, no, I just never learned how to ride as a kid. 
and uh, I would be in better shape now, and maybe I'd be better socialized. The one thing I've dreamed of doing for a long time but haven't is? Um, I don't have anything like that. If you could go back in time, the one piece of advice you would give to my 21-year-old self is? Um, <laughs> uh, treat people like I want to be treated more proactively. I could be a, a jerk at times. Um, and, uh, I should have made that a non-problem, but I didn't realize I was being a jerk. If you could meet one person in the world, who would it be? Uh, I'm tempted to say Leonard Cohen, but that's, uh, oh, not, that's a problematic thing because of the role he plays in my, uh, religious belief. He's my rabbi. Right. And you have not met him. I met him once very briefly. I was too intimidated to get him in discussion. You've talked about him before in a lot of your other interviews. Is there a reason why you haven't reached out to him? You, you, oh, I can see you're a little shy, I, but oh. obviously if that's somebody you want to spend time with, I'm sure he would love to spend time with you. Well, the best reason is that he passed away about six years ago. Okay. Uh, but before before that, I was just too intimidated by the whole thing. Now, as it turns out, my comedian friend, Anne Leonard Cohn, lived in the Chelsea Hotel in New York, the legendary Chelsea, in the uh, 60s or 70s or something. So I'm very jealous about that. But uh, time travel is hard to accomplish. If you could meet one person alive today in the world, who would it be? Um, I don't know if I, uh, know anyone like that, um, offhand, maybe Taylor Swift. I am a Swifty and I have a neighbor who would love me to drag her along to such a meeting and it would, uh, <laughs> it would be life changing for her. So that would be a nice gesture, I guess. Have you been to the concert? No, that's too much work. <laughs> Craig, this has been fantastic to have you on my show. I've been a huge fan for a long time. I was an early Craigslist user. I grew up in the tech world as as you did, really at the same time as you did. And it's been a true pleasure to have you on my show. Thank you for creating Craigslist and for serving the billions and billions of people over the years who have used Craigslist and continue to do it. And congratulations on the truly incredible things you've done with your philanthropy. Thanks. And uh, I just remember that a nerd's got to do what a nerd's got to do.